Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. We drive up Pichincha, which is that big towering mountain. It's like 3,000 feet above Quito, which is already at like 9,500 feet or something. And so I'm way up there and it's the one day we can do this uh, certification jump and like there's fog on the takeoff site. And so you're not supposed to launch in that scenario. You should never fly when it's zero visibility. But the instructors are like, eh, it'll be fine. <laughs> just, just go ahead. You'll be fine. And I'm just like, really? Like, are you sure this is a good idea? Like, yeah, you'll be fine. So I start going down and I'm running down this hill. And because it's so high, I'm having to really run. And I'm running down this hill and I'm not taking off and I'm going really fast at this point. But anyways, get off the ground and it's a complete whiteout. I'm flying in a, just a bank of fog. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody. It's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Sean Tierney. He's back on the show. If you missed the first episode with Sean, it was episode number 21. You're definitely going to want to check that one out. But we have a whole bunch of new and amazing stuff to talk about today. If you did not meet Sean yet, he first of all has over 10 years of entrepreneurial experience. He is currently the director of sales at Pagely, a managed WordPress hosting provider that serves clients such as Disney, Warner Brothers, Comcast, and many others that you would surely know. He does it all while working remotely from some of the most epic locations around the world. In Sean's first year of being a digital nomad, he increased Pagely's annual revenue by 70% year over year. And he did it all while traveling the world on the remote year program and living in 18 different countries on four continents that year. In the last three years combined, Sean's sales expertise has helped Pagely grow from an eight-employee company to a 38-employee company, and he has subsequently gotten international media attention and speaking engagements around the world for the sales systems and processes he has built at Pagely. Now, Sean is also the founder of Charity Makeover. He is the host of the Nomad Podcast, and he is the founder of Nomad Prep Academy, an online training course to help more people transition into the nomadic lifestyle. Sean, welcome back to the show, my man. 
Dude, I, I just want to quit right now. That's like the most amazing intro. I just feel like I can drop the mic and just be like, accept the Grammy Award and go home and just be done. Well, now you and I just set the scene here. We are actually not in the same city today. The last time that we hung out, we were in Lisbon, Portugal, where you interviewed me for your podcast, uh, Nomad Podcast. And when we were there, we opened a beautiful bottle of Portuguese red wine from the Douro Valley. And it was a really, really amazing experience. And I understand that even though we're in different cities today, I'm actually in Lagos, Nigeria in West Africa. I understand that you still being in Lisbon have carried on the tradition and that you are literally opening a bottle of Douro Valley wine as we speak. Indeed, I'm looking at a bottle of Douro uh, Reserve, Vinho Tinto. And Douro, for the people listening, it's a wine region in the north uh, of Portugal. And I think it's the best wine. Uh, I know you were just in Stellenbosch. And I have a feeling it's it's similar in that it's like a hundred of the most premier wineries in Portugal are all in this region. So that is what I am drinking. What are you what do you got in front of you right now? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I have a South African uh, red blend that I've been drinking here in Nigeria. South Africa is really the preeminent wine region on the continent of Africa. And so I was just in Cape Town. I was out in Stellenbosch and doing a bunch of wine tasting out there. So really, whenever I'm in Africa, I try to get the South African reds because that's really the, uh, the preeminent stuff on the continent. So uh, cheers to you, my man. Cheers. Cheers, brother. All right. So let's also, I should also mention that as you logged on here and we put our names into the registration to record this podcast virtually, I looked at your name and instead of Sean Tierney, it says Sean Diddy Combs. So that's that's who I was speaking to at the moment, according to my computer. So I appreciate the hip hop references, my man. Anybody that heard the last episode heard you drop your top five uh, hip hop artists of all time as the final lightning round question. And that's where we left off. So I guess that's where we'll begin again today. So we're back on track and continuing right where we left, which I love that. So let's open up with, I want to go through a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you and I have known each other now for over a year. We've spent time in a number of different countries and there's just so much stuff that I keep learning about you. You know, each time we spend time together, I'm like, man, we got to, we got to talk about that on another episode of the podcast. So I'm super excited to uh, reintroduce a whole bunch of stuff about you on this episode. And let's maybe start a little bit uh, back. I want to kind of go through your entrepreneurial background. And just to start way back, I mean, last time we talked a lot about the sales stuff that you've done at Pagely. But prior to coming to Pagely, I know that you were um, an entrepreneur and that you had those tendencies from a very early age. So can you kind of talk about where you grew up and how those tendencies came to fruition? Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And I think the first entrepreneurial thing I ever did, I was in eighth grade and I just got this harebrained idea that I was going to produce VHS because VHS was the tape back then. But I was going to make VHS tapes of the school plays and sell those to parents. Uh, and so what I did was I took my parents' fax machine. And you'll probably remember this dates us, but it, that thermal paper, that really crappy paper, I printed up a bunch of these flyers on their fax machine and then inserted them in the pamphlets of the folks at uh, the school play. And I just kind of, you know, rogue went in and, and flyered the whole place and said $10 for a copy of your son or daughter performing. And I had 100 orders come in and made a thousand bucks because I had no cost. My parents were buying the tapes. 
Um, I basically went to a bunch of neighbors' houses and got the VCRs from them and then figured out how to chain them together so I could produce these things instead of one at a time. I could do five at a time. And so, yeah, so I made a thousand bucks as an eighth grader, which was a huge chunk of money. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. So uh, I think that was really like the first entrepreneurial venture I ever did. That's unbelievable. A thousand dollars in eighth grade. And so, I mean, that must have been very inspiring that you successfully executed that. And then from there, what were your next sort of entrepreneurial moves as you grew up from there? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would love to say that I like started the next big thing after that, but I think I went, uh, just did school, went through high school, got into music and guitar, didn't really do much entrepreneurial in high school, but I did with my brother shortly out of college, our next entrepreneurial thing, we started a business. I had been running this thing called pub crawl. So <laughs> back up. So we did, we would throw pub crawls and, uh, I was technical. I was, uh, at that point, a computer programmer, so built a site that enabled us to publicize this and throw pub crawls and then figured out if I could add one more column to the database, we can make it so anyone could use this system to promote and execute pub crawls. And so we built this thing called pubcrawl.net and it grew to have something like 120 different cities that were using it to throw pub crawls. And so it kind of inadvertently became like this uh, meetup.com of throwing pub crawls. Anyways, long story short, we we did a number of these and I, each time I was just renting a, a 40 passenger bus and then selling tickets and doing it that way. And we came to the determination that, you know, we started doing these monthly. It was better if we just bought a bus and uh, it would ultimately be cheaper. And then during the week we could, you know, rent it out for like bachelorette parties and stuff. So we ended up buying a city bus, gutting it, putting in like pseudo marble floors and leather seats and plush curtains uh, we did like networked Xboxes and we hacked the Xboxes. So they had like every game on it. And we we made this like ridiculously cool thing. I'll, I'll, I think I've still got some photos. I can maybe you can link them in the show notes. But we built this insanely cool thing and learned a lot about it. Like the transmission dropped in the week that we got it. So we ended up, you know, having a lot of money that we had to spend there. And then Xboxes got stolen on the second ride. So there was a lot of lessons. Like it, it was very glamorous from the outset. And we learned that like, oh, driving drunk people around at all hours of the night is actually like really annoying. So, but yeah, that was the, that was the next entrepreneurial venture. <laughs> That's a significant lesson, though, driving drunk people around at all hours of the night. And so you were in, so you're in Phoenix at the time. And then I know that you got involved with the lean startup group in Phoenix and that you were involved in that as you were going through so many, some of your other entrepreneurial experiences. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, the lean startup concept and what you were doing there? And then some of your other uh, entrepreneurial endeavors that, that came out later? Yeah, absolutely. So about that time, I was starting my first products company. This is called Jumpbox. And the Lean Startup Circle, for the people listening, this is a global thing. Uh, a guy named Eric Reese came out with a book called Lean Startup. It's not actually the first. I, I got to give homage to the, the original founder. Like Steve Blank is the godfather of all this stuff. So go read his stuff. He's the one who really is the person behind this. But Eric Reese is almost like the apprentice who got famous and the, you know, or he's the, he's the protege that got famous and the master didn't get the credit that he deserves. So Steve Blank is the guy, but anyways, uh, lean startup circle is this global network of these meetups and it's all around this methodology for doing startups. And so I became a practitioner of this and started the first group in Phoenix, um, the lean startup circle for Phoenix. And what this was, was basically like a support group for people that were trying to actuate these ideas in pursuit of their own startup. 
And so I ran that for three years while I was building Jumpbox. And we helped a number, uh, just a num- number of entrepreneurs who were going through similar challenges apply these concepts. Awesome. And then from there, can you talk a little bit about Jumpbox and what that was and how you built that company? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jumpbox, the way that emerged, uh, I had been at the time I was a consultant. So I was doing freelance work. I was building commerce applications. Uh, somehow I had this career where I was a computer programmer of eight years and I, I don't know how I did it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm the worst programmer in the world. And yet somehow I made that my living for eight years. I had no formal CS training. I just kind of learned it and went down this interesting, uh, rabbit hole of getting into that position. But anyways, uh, I was a freelance consultant through a number of lunch conversations. I was sharing office space with another guy who was a freelance consultant, uh, and he was a way better programmer than I was. And so over those lunch conversations, we came up with this idea. Uh, we tried something called Grid 7. It was a co-op concept where we would help. Uh, we'd have other like experts all come together on the weekend. And the idea was that we would build these passive recurring revenue projects on the weekend. And it would allow us to all quit our day jobs. And eventually this would be the thing. That failed. But during the course of that endeavor, one idea that was just too big for that format that we had was this concept called Jumpbox. And it ended up, we ended up building what became a whole space called virtual appliances. Um, So we came up with like a radically different approach to distributing software. If you think about how normally how software is distributed, it's an installer that people, you know, install the application on their computer and set it up that way. Well, we figured out a way using virtualization that you don't even need to do that. You can ship a mini virtual computer with everything already set up on it and it runs in the context of your computer. And so people's eyes may be glazing over right now what this is, but essentially this became a tool for server admins. Uh, We got like every major Ivy League school, every branch of the US military was using it. We had customers in 40 countries around the world using it. It became a big deal. And we, we really created a whole space in computing. We ended up not winning that space, but we were the first people really doing it. And you raised a significant amount of money for it as well, I understand. Can you talk a little bit about like, you know, how that evolved and then ultimately what what happened? Why did you transition out of that? Yeah, so we raised, well, I don't know, significant by whose standards. Like we raised three quarters of a million dollars. Uh, I just raised from friends and family initially and then got into the angel network. We found a vein of hockey players that ended up investing and I had initially taken out a home equity line on my house to fund the company at the beginning uh, and then just you know started raising money. And eventually we had revenue as well. So uh, we got to an interesting cul-de-sac where we were meeting. You know, I went out, I basically drove my truck up to San Francisco, couch surfed for a month, uh, met, ended up like having no connections when I got there. And by the end of the month, I had met with 14 venture capitalists. And so it was like an eye opener into really how connected that city is. If you just go and network and go to all the events and kind of share your vision and get out there, you can really in pretty short order embed yourself in that community and get to like, there's a ton of money in that area and they're just looking for good ideas. So we had some luck there. I was meeting, I had a verbal go ahead with Sequoia, but it fell during a really (laughs) crappy timing during 2008, September, when the Lehman Brothers, like just the whole financial crisis happened. And so we had to go ahead from them. We didn't have a term sheet, but we had the verbal go ahead to uh, work with them. And they're like a top tier, arguably Sequoia is one of the top tier investors. So we, we had the go ahead. Unfortunately, timing was really bad. So the door slammed shut on the capital markets. We had to basically get re- profitable. At that time, we had a 50,000 a month run rate. And 
like 11 employees. And so it was painful. We had to lay some people off. Fortunately, though, revenue was increasing at that point. And so we did turn the corner on the runway that we had left. I think we had like three months of cash in the bank at that point, given that run rate. Anyways, we managed to extend it, turn the corner. Uh, it never broke out. Uh, it, it, it became what they call a zombie company in that, you know, people fund a startup because they think it's the next unicorn and they're going to make a crap ton of money on it. Uh, we built what was more accurately a lifestyle business that was in a very interesting space. And albeit we did some really cool stuff, but it was a lifestyle business ultimately. Uh, and so we eventually made the decision to shut it down. We had a lot of code debt uh, and we had obviously the convertible notes and the investor debt. We basically ended up just giving them back the money we had in the bank and winding it down. And I know you also got into the real estate space for a little bit, which I was really interested to hear about. We got a lot of real estate uh, people that listen to the show. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that came about and what you were doing with real estate for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that that 2008 period, I was living in Phoenix at the time. I had a house in Phoenix. And Phoenix was, I, I believe, the second city that was hit the worst by the real estate crisis. And I know you're intimately familiar because that's when you were starting your real estate firm at that time as well. So you know about it. I had a house. I had taken out the home equity line to start the company. I wasn't paying myself. I was paying my employees. And so it was a partic- particularly difficult time. And the house was well underwater, given that I took out a second mortgage to do the company. So I was looking at just walking away and, you know, leaving the keys and going through the foreclosure process at that point. And a friend of mine heard about that. He said, no, you really should short sell it. And here's why. Long story short, I ended up short selling the house successfully uh, with the help of a friend of a friend. And he was so good at navigating the process. And this was like such an eye opener to me. I didn't realize that this whole concept of a short sale existed and that you could purge the debt and all that. And so it was amazing. And I decided, I said, look, a lot of people are going through this right now. You're really good at navigating it. Why don't we team up and we'll take your knowledge of the short sale process, my knowledge of lead gen and technology, and we can do a startup around basically helping other people, introducing them to this option and assisting with their short sale. And we ended up building that. We did something called Short Salepedia. Um, It was the largest question and answer site. And that's a whole nother story of how we growth hacked that. But uh, we had like for a while, we were number four for the term short sale on Google. But anyways, yeah, we, we ended up building up this massive system and we made a network of across the US. I think we had 150 total realtors in it. And we would just basically originate leads and get people who had questions and who needed help with short sales. And then we formed relationships with the best CSR designated realtors in each location. And we would pair them up and make the referral and then make referral commission on that arrangement. Awesome. Let me ask you now about this. I know you also got into and during this time you're doing you're doing things with art and you're also doing things with music. And some of that overlapped with business and some of it was just creative and personal and stuff like that. But can you talk a little bit about both the art side for you and the music side for you? And I've noticed on Instagram recently, for example, you're, you're doing some really interesting projects with some, some of the past things that you've been involved with and stuff like that. So can you share a little bit about that and what that's meant to you? Yeah, for sure. So we have music and art in our family uh, from my dad's side. Like My aunt is a really skilled watercolor artist. Uh, my grandfather was both a sketch artist and a very talented piano player. Um, so that gene comes from my father's side of the family. And I've had art and music in me since a very young age. So yeah, the, the experiment that Matt's referring to, I have a thing going right now just for the heck of it. For seven days, I am pairing a original painting with a, an original piece of music. 
And I'm pushing that out through Instagram and Facebook. And then I'm telling the story behind the music and the art. Uh, and it's just kind of an experiment more than anything right now to see if uh, we can do something more interesting with Instagram than travel photos and sound bites. But business-wise, I tried to meld those back in, God, I don't even know what year that was, but I went and I, I wanted to live by the ocean. And so I went and moved to Newport Beach and a buddy there talked me into uh, working with him in Laguna Beach, which has a huge artist scene. Uh, and so we decided to try and take my knowledge of computers and marketing automation and see if we could help artists uh, sell their works and, and just really scale uh, growth hack the sales of uh, original works for artists in Laguna Beach. Um, so we started that company. It was called Artilage. It was a very short-lived project. Uh, what we learned, we met with, God, we screened about 100 artists. We met with 15 of them. We boiled that down to three. And the goal there was to help them basically figure out how, you know, what could we apply of our knowledge to help them sell their paintings. But what we learned pretty quickly working with artists is they they lack, at least the ones we found, and these were the best of the best that we could find. Um, they're, like, there's a reason they're starving artists. Like, they don't, they, they kind of embrace that role and almost like cherish that vision of being a star starving artist versus wanting to just go out and crush it. And we found it very hard to get them to actually contribute content and stay on top of it and just be, you know, hustle. So anyways, we pulled the plug on that business about a month after going through this whole screening process. I was still in Newport. I had a lease. And so I was like, what else can I do? I went through this Simon Sinek Start With Why program, which I love. It was really powerful. And that led me to another project that I started that was called Survival School TV. And what that was, this is just a completely you know, radically different business than the, the art stuff. So Simon Sinek, you have the Start With Why process. You learn about what your why is and then basically want to envision like what is the most ambitious thing that you can contribute to the world. And I started thinking like, if my task was to eliminate crime and disaster from the world, you know, if that was what I was charged with, how might I go about trying to attack that? And the thought was, you can't secure all the targets, but you can, you know, what if we could implant essentially sky marshals throughout society? So people, if you could get half a percent of the population trained up in things like emergency medical and self-defense and weapons knowledge and just like all the skills like of a Jason Bourne, if you had enough of those people scattered throughout society, that's how you mitigate issues like terrorism and disasters and floods and any tragedy you can think of. If there's enough of those people in society, then it's actually going to be very good. It's going to like make the whole society safer. Um, so set out to try and make that, um, did a pilot with a Krav Maga instructor. And long story short, it's very difficult to monetize this. It was really more of a like a ambitious, well-meaning project, but very ill-conceived revenue model around it. So that didn't last long. We were unable to monetize that. I uh, ended up ultimately pulling the plug, heading back to Phoenix and falling back to what I know, which is the consulting. So, all right, I got to ask you one more Phoenix story. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. <laughs> Which is the story about the license plate. I'm just going to, I'm just not going to say anymore. I'm just going to allow you to tell it and explain the context and tell the story. But we have, this did get you on the news. And I understand that we actually have a link to the news clip of when this happened, which we're definitely going to put in the show notes for people to go see. But but how old were you? And and just set the context and then you can tell the story. Yeah, it was while I was building Jumpbox. So I would have been about 30 or 30, 31-ish around that area. Um, 
this, okay, so what Matt's referring to, I hate photo radar. Uh, I don't know if, if, if you're listening, if you know what that is, but photo radar are these cameras. They put them, uh, in our case, both on the highway and on red lights in Phoenix. And so they're largely billed as being a safety measure. It's designed to slow people down and in, in theory makes the whole society safer. But there was a bunch of studies that were indicating that no, it was actually people were like slamming on the brakes at the red light just because they were realizing they might get the ticket or, you know, stopping on the highway, slowing way down because they didn't want to trip the camera and it was like causing more accidents that was helping. So anyways, I hate photo radar. I looked at it and I started thinking like, what are the options for defeating photo radar? I went through a number of different things. I know there's sprays and like trick plates and various things you can do. But then I got this idea like, okay, well, how do, how do you actually get the photo radar ticket? I started thinking about the process for how that works. And, you know, there's a, there's a camera. Then at that point, they didn't have the, like the optical OCR stuff. So there was actually a person that would have to look at the films and pair that up with the license plate and then issue the ticket. And there you go. That's how you get the ticket in the mail. So I said, okay, well, I can get a vanity plate. Why don't I get one that has confusingly similar digits and letters? I ordered a vanity plate online for Arizona that was like OD-O-0-0-D or something like that. And I don't even know what the plate was, but um, I ordered this plate. I got it. I, it was right before I was going on a vacation when it arrived. So I posted it. I wrote up this blog post called The Vehicular Thomas Crown Affair. And I was promoting this. I'm like, hey, anyone can get this. This is how you do it. And this like F photo radar, like, you know, this will defeat it. I come back from Cabo San Lucas to literally an email inbox full of all this stuff. Like the news crew was at our office. This I was on a radio show. Like the newspaper did an article on me. So it was like my 15 minutes of fame for <laughs> essentially hacking photo radar and telling people how to do it. And it it pissed off a lot of people. Like I'll, I'll give you the blog post that was kind of the seminal piece I did on it. There was this, like half the comments were just scathing people like, oh, I can't believe you're telling people how to like just slow down. Don't whatever. And half the people are like, right on, like F photo radar. So, but yeah, that was my, my kind of my claim to fame in terms of defeating that creatively. It's one of the most amazing looking license plates I've ever seen because it's like three different letters, like O, D, and zero, but they all look basically exactly the same. So you can't tell what the letters are on the yes. license plate. It's unbelievable. But we're going to post the link to the news story that actually interviews you when it happened and shows the plate and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we will put all of that in the show notes. So let me ask you this. I mean, throughout your entrepreneurial experiences, can you talk about what were the lessons that you learned from going through all these different endeavors? And and ultimately, when you landed at Pagely, I mean, can you just kind of talk about your reflections on that path and you know how you decided through all of your experiences that Pagely was the right fit for you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard to boil 10 years of entrepreneurial experiences into like concise statements. But I think overall, if I had to do it, I think adopting a mindset of experimentation, it kind of all boils down to that. And like the, our mistake with Jumpbox, we built an amazing product, but it took us a year to build it. And then it took us probably another year to figure out how to sell it. And so if I had it to do over again, I would really recommend validating demand and validating the method by which you're going to sell the thing before you build it. Or at the very least, in parallel, while you're building it, you should be you should not wait until it's done to learn those lessons. You should try to parallelize, parallelize that. Um, so, but yeah, like overall, if I had to collapse it all down to one bit of advice, it would be that 
mindset of experimentation, figure out like everything is an experiment minute to minute. And if you can get good at that and decide like, what is the key thing we're trying to solve for right now? What is our biggest bottleneck? And what does that look like? And so what question are we trying to answer? What data would we need to have in order to answer that question? And then what experiment do we need to run to yield that data? And then you basically back your way into, okay, so this is the experiment and this is what it's going to produce. And then we'll be able to answer that question and then do that, run the experiment, get the data, answer the question, and then rinse and repeat. And it's, it's literally just a series of that. Right. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about your story is that with Pagely right now, you're not, you, you know, you were not one of the founders of the company and you're not the CEO of the company. You're the sales director. And I feel like that's really, really interesting because you have this entire entrepreneurial background. I feel like a lot of people feel that in order to, you know, get the autonomy that I need or to travel or to do my own thing or to have the, you know, the level of freedom that I want and control that I want, I have to become an entrepreneur and I have to start and found my own company and then I have to run it. And then I think a lot of people get intimidated by that a little bit, you know, with, oh, well, maybe I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm not a CEO, or I'm not a whatever, and, you know, and so forth. So I'm wondering if you have just reflections that you can share about, you know, from someone that does have entrepreneurial tendencies and has that, ex- you know, experience, but has chosen a role in a place that's not a founder CEO type of role. Can you share thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I think I get the best of both worlds. I mean, I've heard this term intrapreneur that's thrown around now. And realistically, that's kind of how I operate at Pagely. I don't have any oversight. I mean, I answer to the CEO, but he basically says, keep doing what you're doing. So I run experiments, I figure out what works, what doesn't work. And then I support our sales team. And so I, I feel like I get to act much like an entrepreneur does only in a safer environment in that I'm like, I get a steady paycheck and I do have performance incentives. I get commission based on how well we're doing. But overall, I have a team behind me. I don't have to worry about the overhead, the HR issues, the crap that you go through in running a company that's just not fun. Um, I get to really do what I'm best at, which is figuring out the sales and marketing stuff. So it's absolutely an option. Like, I think that's a really good insight that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't think that like you have to be an entrepreneur and take all that risk on yourself. And uh, like, that's, it's a binary option. It's not, there are other ways to have the freedom and to work for a remote friendly company in an entrepreneurial capacity and kind of have your cake and eat it too. I think that's a really good insight. Yeah, because you've been able to do a lot of very innovative and ingenuitive stuff at Pagely. Can you talk a little bit about the Leviathan system that you developed at Pagely and what some of the lessons are that you've uh, learned from that? Yeah, definitely. I did two years as a marketing automation consultant. So I got to know a system called Infusionsoft really well. I'm not actually a fan of that product. I've since become a fan of this other thing called Active Campaign. Uh, but long story short, I learned quite a bit about marketing automation. I was able to apply a lot of my experience as a programmer to do it in a little bit more elegant of a way. And so this turned some heads at this Active Campaign company. I built something while on Remote Year called Leviathan. And I basically imagined, given that at at the time I was the only salesperson for the company, I was doing a number of roles. I was writing content for the blog and I was generating the leads and then setting up the phone calls, playing basically an SDR role as well as the executive account executive role, doing the calls and then babysitting the proposals and yada, yada, yada. It's doing a lot. 
So this Leviathan system, I identified that the biggest bottleneck to my progress was my inability to babysit deals once I had a productive phone call. In, in other words, we were losing deals with people. I'd have an amazing phone conversation. It was a right fit. It was truly the best thing for them. And then they would go off and they'd go dark and end up like talking to a second rate competitor. And they would just go with that person because they were the last person they talked to. So I was like, that can't happen. And yet I don't have the capacity. I'm still too busy generating the leads and, and doing all the other stuff. Um, so I need a system that will do that for me. I need to use my knowledge of computers to build something that will essentially be like an intern that I can assign to every prospect in the system who will watch that person and see what they need, see what we know about them. What are they doing on our website? How are they interacting with our emails? And just give them really targeted, personalized follow-up. And so that's what I built. I called it Leviathan. Like every project for Pagely is named after a sea creature for some reason. So Leviathan was a thing. And yeah, it, it turned some heads. Active Campaign ended up getting wind of it, of what I did. I ended up meeting with like their chief data scientist and 10 people from their team. And I think it was pretty actually formative in the recent stuff that they rolled out. Uh, but anyways, this is a the whole methodology, it's pretty sophisticated. Uh, I'm going to be doing a webinar on it. I actually made a link for you too, by the way. So if you go to pagely.com slash maverick, I'm doing a webinar on July 9th that kind of unveils all this stuff. So you can see how it works. But yeah, lots of lessons there. Uh, I think the one that might be most relevant to your listeners, because it's applicable in other contexts, not just this programming context, but Basically, if you ever get like writer's block or what I call blank canvas syndrome, when you just, you know, you're starting something that's kind of big, massive project. And it's like that first step is like, where do you even begin? What I learned from this project is if you can take an intermediary step, if you can break it down, in other words, don't go try to sit down and start programming this thing. If you go one step before that to, you know, just pen and paper if you have to, but whatever conceptual sketch, if you can forget the technology first, that just diagram it out on a decision tree. Like, what does this need to do? What does the logic look like? And think of it independent of the technology first. And then once you have that blueprint, it's far easier to then go and be like, okay, what are the constraints of the technology? How do I map this over to that? But because it's just too much, it's too many variables to keep in your head at once if you try to jump straight to implement it in the tech. That's awesome. Let me ask you a very, very general sales question, which is, what do you feel? I mean, with all of the years of sales experience that you have in all these different capacities, what do you feel is really the key to closing a sale and to being an effective salesperson? If you were kind of to distill that down and also feel free to break it out if there is a distinction between B to C sales, where you're selling to individual consumers versus B to B sales, which is what you're doing now when you're selling and closing Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. I mean, the distinction I think is just one of sales cycles and number of stakeholders and complexity of the sale. I don't think fundamentally, like to me, the best way and like our motto at, at Pagely and our philosophy of sales is that sales is simply customer service before they're a customer. And like I'll say it again, because this is literally our core philosophy comes down to this one statement that sales is customer service before they're a customer. If you think in those terms, then all you're doing is trying to get them the best outcome based on what you know of their situation. That then dictates that you do a lot more discovery, that you try to get on the same side of the table and truly understand their challenges, that you have a deep knowledge of your own product and can map that effectively 
you know, bridge build so you can help understand their challenges and then show how your stuff maps to what they need. And yeah, if, as long as you like, I've had plenty of calls where it, we weren't the best fit. And I'll be the first one to say, look, you know, based on what I know of your situation, I don't even think we're good for you. I think you should go talk to this competitor and here's why. And people will will respect that so much. And we've had referrals come from those folks because we treated them so well. And they, they love the fact that we were very forthcoming and saying, hey, we're not the best fit. Go talk to them. But they'll still tell other people about us. So I think that's just it. It all comes down to truly try to have fiduciary, you know, the real estate term, but try to have their best interests ahead of your own and get them a good outcome. That's awesome. Now, I know that you have been uh, in traveling the world and traveling to some epic locations. You have been uh, closing some sales from some pretty incredible spots. In the last episode, you told the story about how you closed your largest sale of all time from a Moroccan bowling alley, uh, which made it into the title of the episode, by the way, of course. But I know that you've had some other epic experiences. You were telling me one about, I think you were in Ireland. Uh, what was uh, what was that story? Yeah. So three of us did a side trip to Ireland and, you know, road trip across Ireland, had this amazing trip, wound up at the Cliffs of Moher, got there just right at sunset and had this just incredible few moments uh, watching the sun go down and like this, just like this fog coming up out of the cliffs. And anyways, my phone goes off because at that point I was doing all the calls for Pagely and people could book appointments unbeknownst to me. And I didn't have a quarantine uh, of like three hours that I, I did after that. So someone had booked a call and it's like, I looked at my phone, it's it's buzzing. It tells me I have 10 minutes to get back to do the sales call. So I race back, it starts hailing. So I'm running through the hail, get to the car. Uh, my laptop's there. Of course, we're far from any Wi-Fi. So I tether off my phone, <laughs> get, the, get the Zoom meeting up and I'm doing the call and it's just like hailing. And they're like, what's that noise? I'm like, oh yeah, it's it's pretty loud. I don't know, some construction or something like, and it's just like pelting this little car. And long story short, had a great sales call, closed it. But like, how do you explain to someone what that is? You know, like, where do you even begin to be like, well, it's this digital nomading thing. It's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. Like when, when we were on remote year, our group, and we, we were, you know, remote year for people that don't know is a work travel program for working professionals that can that are location independent and then can work from anywhere. And so you travel the world together for a year and you live in a different city each month for 12 months. And so you get some really interesting and amazing people on the program and uh, they're all doing stuff like that, right? I mean, it's like you're you're walking around on like a street art graffiti tour and people are on, you know, conference calls or trying to close deals on rooftops at midnight and yet stepping out to do this and that. And it's just, it's amazing. Like the, the digital nomad world, uh, whether you're in sales or whatever it is, is just an amazing, you know, work travel environment that just lends itself to some insane stories. It, it is definitely the period of life when you you find yourself saying, is this real life? Like more than any other time, <laughs> just the most random things like that happening for sure. For sure. And I know you've had a whole bunch of travel adventures over the years. We talked about on the last episode about you falling off South America's tallest volcano. <laughs> but I know you also in spending time in South America got certified for paragliding. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how that experience went down? Yeah. So this is way back in the day. I lived in Quito, Ecuador for six months as a part of an exchange program. And I would walk home from school and see these guys just flying in parachutes, like flying for hours off the the main mountain, Mount Pichincha in Quito. 
And so I was actually like, wow, man, I really want to try that. And so I got into a class, learned how to paraglide, went to the beach, this little town called Crucita, Ecuador, and ended up, that was like my first extended flight and ended up flying for like two and a half hours. I was just transfixed, you know, like one of these things where you lose track of time and you're just in the zone. And I'm following seagulls in Crucita, Ecuador. Uh, There was a part there called La Cuchara, the spoon. And so the winds would come across the ocean and it hit this point in the in the mountain where it was like a, a spoon. It was kind of like just the, the way it was structured. It was like a big bowl. And so it was like an elevator. You could go where the wind was hitting it and it would reflect the wind up. And so you kind of just like sit on this elevator and go up a thousand feet and then fly out over the ocean and come down and then go back and go up. And so I'm following the seagulls and just having this incredible experience. And that was Crucita. But my certification jump was like two weeks later, went back to Quito and we drive up Pichincha, which is that big towering mountain. It's like 3000 feet above Quito, which is already at like 9,500 feet or something. And so I'm way up there and it's the one day we can do this uh, certification jump. And it's, we get there and it's fogged in, like there's fog on the, on the takeoff site. And so you're not supposed to launch in that scenario. Like you, you should never fly when it's zero visibility, but the instructors are like, eh, you'll be fine. <laughs> just, just go ahead. You'll be fine. And I'm just like, really? Like, are you sure this is a good idea? <laughs> like, yeah, you'll be fine. So I start going down and I'm running down this hill and because it's so high, it's, you know, flying at sea level is very different. It's the air is as dense as it can ever be at sea level, right? Because you're at sea level up that high where like whatever, 13,000 feet, I'm having to really run and I'm running down this hill and I'm not taking off and I'm going really fast at this point. But anyways, get off the ground and it's, it's a complete whiteout. I'm flying in a, just a bank of fog. I can't see anything. I'm flying for 30 seconds in just a pure whiteout pop out over the city of Quito, Ecuador, which is this sprawling city. And it was just surreal. You know, it was one of those moments, again, where you're just looking at like, is this real life? Like, what am I doing? And the guys on the radio like, izquierda, derecha, derecha. <laughs> like, how did I get here? Uh, so I, I land. And then what was crazy, uh, I didn't even tell you this before, but what's crazy is I land and the guys from uh, this company, ProDesign, which was a paragliding company, they were there and like, you've got like Red Bull, you know, paragliders, these guys doing these wing overs and beeline stalls and crazy maneuvers coming in after me. They're all landing. And one guy who was a local, he's coming in, he's the last one. And you see this guy is way overshooting the LZ, the landing zone. And so he's coming in really high. And we're like, what is he doing? And this guy flies into the freaking power lines and just knocks out the power to that section of the city barbecues his glider like this guy could have died he was like suspended in air dangling from the power lines in his paraglider and no one wanted to touch him he's begging for someone to come cut him down and of course nobody wants to they don't know if he's still electrified and the dude lives because he 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 was suspended so he didn't arc the circuit to the ground so he I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, 
without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation. If that sounds interesting to you to learn more about it, you can just go to the maverickshow.com slash consult. And now back to the episode. It was actually fine, but what a freaking crazy 30 minutes, right? It was just like, what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) That is unbelievable. And yet you continued paragliding after that. I did for a while. Um, Ultimately, this is a sad story. My instructor in uh, Phoenix died doing it. He died in a flight accident uh, with a student. The student lived. He did not. And I I stopped the sport after that. It's an amazing sport. I I hope to do it again someday, maybe. But like that rattled me. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up kite surfing became the thing. It's a far safer sport. So that's what I do now. Yeah. Wow. Well, and we talked about the kite surfing thing on our last episode when you and I were in Brazil and we spent a few weeks there and you brought all your kite surfing gear. And uh, we talked a little bit about that in the last episode. Now, the other thing that we talked about in the last episode was when we got you in Brazil in front of an audience with a guitar to be able to sing a song in Portuguese that you had memorized and prepared. But the thing was that on that last show, we did not have a guitar. So I was like, "Um, can you sing a minute of this song a cappella?" And you're like, well, the main point is kind of the guitar piece. Um, (laughs) And so for this episode, I had you in advance uh, schedule this at a moment where you could actually have a guitar with you. And I think that the song that I want to ask you to play is the one that you played on the Nomad Cruise. You and I were just on the Nomad Cruise um, a few months back, which went from the Canary Islands up to Lisbon, Portugal. And on the Nomad Cruise, they have a talent show. And you played this song in the talent show. Now we we should we should also we should also talk about the aftermath. No, you played the song. <laughs> what was it? Okay, so here's the all right. So so people can't see us because this is an audio podcast. You and I are both about the same age. We're both Irish American guys, and we're both over six five. I'm about six five. You're about six seven. And so what happened was when you have a boat with two hundred people on it, apparently, is that when you and I were were doing things separately, there was an, a very high percentage of people that mixed the two of us up, me and you. And so and so literally the night after you played this song and you got a, a huge, you know, response and ovation and everything after you played the song, the next day I have people coming up to me all day long and like, oh my gosh, that song you played was so amazing. And I would kind of laugh and like, oh thanks, you know, but actually it wasn't me. That was my man Sean who played the song. And they just look at me and be like, no, it was you. I saw you. <laughs> well, Matt, I, I, I can't remember if I told you, but I was at brunch the next morning after your talk. And I'm sitting there and this woman sits down next to me and starts like unloading on her woes about real estate investing. And I can't figure out why she's like opening up and she feels like so comfortable telling me about this. And I'm like, oh, you think I'm Matt, don't you? <laughs> and so it cuts both ways, bro. <laughs> well, and so much so that you were getting all the feedback on my talks and I was getting feedbacks on, on your talks and things that you did. The most amazing example of that was I literally, after the Nomad Cruise, when we were in Lisbon, I facilitated 
a panel discussion for Nomads Giving Back, which is our mutual friend Tarek, who people know from uh, the Maverick show as well. It was a guest. So Tarek put together this amazing panel uh, and he asked me to facilitate it, which I did. So I'm up there in front of the audience for an hour facilitating this panel. At the very end of the panel, there's an opportunity for people who have you know charitable opportunities uh, to give a 60-second pitch and people that are interested in that can come talk to them. And you got up and gave a 60-second pitch, right? Literally after that panel, somebody comes up to me. I'd been facilitating for an hour. They come up to me and they're like, yo, that 60-second pitch you gave, how can I get involved with that? <laughs> it, was one of the most, it was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. I was like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like we've got to use this somehow. Like, I, I, I think of that movie, The Prestige, where like the two twin brothers like have the magic show that they can pull off and like it seems like they're disappearing or whatever i feel like we got to figure out a way to to monetize this yeah i mean after a while i just gave up and people were like oh that song you sang was so amazing i was like oh thanks very much that really means a lot to me i appreciate that you know and i was just like i was just not even gonna i was just not even gonna correct them i just accept the accolades then i pass it on to you i'd be like sean today four people came up to me and appreciated the song that i played but anyways now that we've built that entire thing up uh the song actually was legitimately and authentically um amazing and i was wondering if you could play that song for us including with the guitar and maybe before you do that just share a little bit about the context for it you know what the song means to you how it came about and then if you could play it for us that'd be awesome yeah for sure uh so the song was actually the very first song i ever wrote it's called blind um it was written gosh i was river rafting the grand canyon with my brother and my dad and i just met this amazing girl in phoenix but i was on my way that summer to go to college in texas and so it has a lot of different stuff wrapped up in one. It was kind of like this theme of rebellion and like how we're in this gauntlet of education that just leads us to the next schooling, to the next job, to the, you know, what after that. It was kind of that theme, but it was also like a theme that I think a lot of nomads will identify with, which is when you meet someone amazing, but then you're also about to leave that place. And it's like that kind of bittersweet, like, holy crap, this is so great that I met this person, but this sucks that like it's kind of destined to not work out from the very beginning. So um, it was a lot of those themes and that's why I played it on the boat. And yeah, it seemed to resonate with a lot of people. So, but yeah, I've got a guitar here. I can uh, give it a shot. All right. Yeah. So the name of the song is Blind. Say anything 
Did I ever say I'm gonna miss you when I'm gone? Did I ever say that I believe? I believe that we are blind, it seems to me. No one sees things in my own way, and we are blind to choose to be. All the rest just look away. in my bed and I'm looking around. I'm watching the walls, they're falling down. And the only thing left is you and me. And what choice in the voices of authority say? You gotta do well in school if you want a good job. You gotta have a good job if you want a good life. Fuck the plan, I've got my own and I'm living today. So you will hear me say that they are blind, it seems to me. They can't see the things that we see. And they are blind and they choose to be. And all the rest can just be what the rest will be. So where can we go from here? It's not much longer now Till I'm off to new places and new faces You're just another one in the crowd But I'll never forget these times with you Change the world with all that we do One story, one thread, one line Listen up as I say it one time Life is a river, we're all giving a boat It's not enough to hold on, just sit there and float Because sometimes in life, you gotta battle upstream Deal with holes in your boat Broken oars, broken dreams And I don't always know how to steer And I can't always see And I don't always hear But we take what we get if we give what we got One try, one life, our shot And it's not long now No, it's not long now No, it's not long That's it. So awesome, bro. I love that song, man. Thank you for playing that. That's amazing. All right. So now the other thing that happened on the Nomad Cruise is your initiative of the charity makeover i think got revitalized and and in in new ways and i was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about charity makeover and what it is exactly and how it started and now you know what you've got planned for 2019 yeah absolutely so charity makeover was a project i started back in phoenix a couple of years ago i had gone to a a really transformational event thrown by a now friend of mine, Andrew Hyde, called Startup Weekend. And so this was uh, basically, I kind of modeled after what he had 
built with that, only tweaked it a little bit. Startup Weekend, for the people that have never heard of that event, it's basically you build a startup in the course of a weekend. So you have to design and execute and deliver a product uh, in 52 hours from Friday night to set or Sunday night. And so I went to one of the very first uh, startup weekends ever in San Francisco, and then subsequently was a part of nine of them. I threw three of them, and I was uh, attendee at six of them. And so I was a big believer in these. Uh, it's an incredible experience It for so many reasons, but the learning, the networking, the exposure to ideas, it's just an, an incredible experience. Uh, the flaw that I saw with it, though, is that startup weekend, people were inventing these ideas for products and working on them. And then at the end of the weekend, they would basically get thrown away. And so you would you would build something amazing and then no one, it would just kind of be vaporware after that weekend. And so I was looking at it like, well, how else could we have this exact same experience, but instead purpose those efforts towards helping charities, like basically pairing up with a charity and applying building stuff for them. So it actually got used after we left. So that's what we did on, like you said, on the cruise, it got revitalized. Like this is a thing that I started years ago and then it got kind of shelved due to time constraints. And then uh, I just got the idea to pitch it. There was something like essentially like Shark Tank on the boat called Piranha Tank. And I pitched on that. It got a pretty warm response. And so I said, well, now I got to do this. So we threw one in Lisbon uh, May 18th, a couple months ago, and it went really well. Uh, we helped three charities. It was the first event where we've helped more than one. So we scaled it. And one of those charities was remote. One was a charity that we worked with in uh, Cordoba, Argentina, a monkey sanctuary. Uh, the other two were local Lisbon charities, both helping refugees. So we had about 22 members, I think, participated. And we worked uh, that weekend and we developed different stuff for each of those. But it was a pretty amazing experience. And this is something where like, if money is no issue and I can figure out a model that makes this work, like I see this as being potentially like the legacy that I can leave is to like make this a global movement in the way that Startup Weekend became a global movement. So the plan now is to you know, do a couple more events in locally in Lisbon. And then we there's a couple of us that are aiming to do a road trip uh, mid-September to mid-November, ultimately try to terminate it in Istanbul to coincide with the next Nomad Cruise. And so, yeah, I think we're going to try to deploy it in eight different European cities. And yeah, I'd love to have anyone listening. If this sounds like your thing, uh, it'd be amazing to have you involved. It's just charitymakeover.com. If, if it sounds up your alley, you can submit your details there and I'll, I'll be in touch with you. Can you talk specifically about what happens that weekend? So first of all, what types of people can volunteer? And then of the people that do volunteer, what exactly does the weekend look like? Yeah. Uh, so we can take pretty much everyone, like it, depending on what your skills are, developers obviously are very uh, in high demand, but designers, copywriters, anyone who has experience with PR or grant writing or working with nonprofits specifically, you name it. Like, And it, even if none of those match what you do, you know, translators, anything like we can use pretty much everyone we can get. But the idea is to really just find local charities that are poised to do great things, but lack the in-house expertise uh, in things like marketing. And, the, you know, they're, they're focused on whatever their cause is and solving that, but they don't know how to promote it and how to fundraise and how to basically manage a nonprofit. And so we parachute in and in very short order, build the most high leverage digital assets we can for those folks and, uh, and yeah, just really try to advance their cause for them so that after that weekend, they're in a far better position. 
Yeah, I think that's really amazing what you guys are doing. You're putting together this highly skilled dream team of individual practitioners who can do things like build websites or write copy or create marketing campaigns. And you're all coming together and coming in to completely overhaul the infrastructure of a charity in an extremely short period of time. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's what I envision if they were to reconceive the Peace Corps in this day and age, like if you were to rethink what does that look like in the age of knowledge workers and people that don't have two years to, you know, commit to something and go live somewhere and dedicate, but they could intermittently participate remotely and help causes that way. Um, I mean, we, the tools have come so far and that this is really a thing now. And so I, I really think it's like what the Peace Corps would look like if they were to re-envision it today. Cool. So what we'll do is we'll put that website link at themaverickshow.com in the show notes. You can just go there and get all the links from this episode. And if you would like to contribute your skills to one of the charity makeover projects, you can just click through that link and uh, check out the opportunities to do that, help out a charity, and also to collaborate with some other amazing people that are involved with these projects. Sean, at this point, I want to continue a little bit on the music discussion. I know that you have a very wide range of appreciation for a lot of different types of music, one of which that we have in common is hip-hop. And I want to just ask you about how you came to connect with that particular art form. What is it about hip-hop music that resonated with you? And what is it about hip-hop that you connect with and appreciate? Yeah. So I've always had this weird, rebellious kind of fight the system kind of gene as evidenced in my hacking the photo radar thing, which is just one of many stories like that. But I have a real deep mistrust of government, to be frank. So I think that is what resonates with me, uh, or not just government, but authority in general. So that's kind of what I connect with in terms of hip hop. And yeah, I think we share a lot of the same influences, like old school 90s type artists. Always love talking with you about about that genre, my man. Yeah, you know, it's been really amazing here in Nigeria to see the amount of 90s hip hop in particular that is regularly played today in 2019. I'm talking about in Uber rides, at pool parties by the beach, in restaurants that have DJs. It is all over. It's completely prolific. I'm talking about artists like Biggie, artists like Naughty by Nature. It's absolutely ubiquitous everywhere that you go here. And it's particularly the 90s hip hop from that era. And it's amazing to see that this many years later in 2019, this current generation of people still has that level of appreciation for that music. I, I think they struck a nerve. I think that, you know, that people identify with a lot of the themes that they have in that era of music. And it's it's relevant. It's it's interesting to see pockets of that and where it's popping up and why people are identifying with it. You know, I, I think it's timeless and the, the, those sentiments are no better captured than they are in that music. And that's why we still see it around today. Yeah, for sure. And at this point, Sean, I want to ask you about your podcast, which is called Nomad Podcast. I know that you did season one and then you took a pause and now you have just launched season two. And I want to ask you about that, give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about 
anything that's different about season two and what people can look forward to when they tune in to season two of Nomad Podcast. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, well, so truth be told, like you were the impetus in, in terms of compelling me to reboot it. And so I thank you for that encouragement and all the tips you gave me. You gave me a lot of good advice in terms of what's changed. Basically, I had, I, I don't know what I'm doing, like, right, I'm just I'm in front of a camera recording people that I think are interesting, but learning as I go and refining it. And you convinced me to get better high quality audio gear. Uh, so I got the Zoom 6 recorder, I got some professional mics, dialed that in. Uh, I also changed the format a bit, got a professional intro outro, did the teaser, I pretty much follow your format in terms of how you drop that little compelling teaser up front that gets people to listen to the episode. It does have a video component. So most of mine, or all of mine at this point, I've filmed in person. So I was fortunate to interview eight people after the Nomad Cruise. And so I've had a steady stream of those hitting each week. Uh, and I was able to get a video with each one of them. And, and that's like a little one minute commercial for what they're going to get by listening to it. So all told, yeah, it's just a refinements to something. But like the mission of my podcast uh, is really to like the Nomad Prep Academy that I created. It's to help others who are considering this lifestyle, who think that maybe they can't do it. It's to give them education and inspiration to make that leap uh, and to do it and be successful at it. So I, I record basically three different groups of people, nomads, what I would call domain experts and founders. So product and program founders. And those three groups I think between those, you get a really good cross-section of things that can help aspiring nomads take the leap. So that's what I do. And then all of that, like the way that the podcast came about, I had produced the course first. I built an e-course called Nomad Prep. And this is like the two-week academy that I wish existed when I was preparing to do remote year. No one really laid it out of, oh, this is like what you need to worry about in this sequence and then go like figure out, make sure you have your job situation on lock. Now you can shift emphasis and like, let's take care of the minutia around vaccines and visas and, and all that junk uh, and insurance and storing your stuff and selling your car and doing all that stuff. So like, I basically just wanted someone to handhold me and like put it on autopilot and be like, this is what we're doing today. This is what we're doing tomorrow. So with my course, you go through two weeks and we just focus on a few things each day at the end of it you're basically ready to get on a plane and it paces it out. There's a 42 point checklist that it runs you through. You can track the progress of what you've completed and what remains to be done. Uh, and then it will remind you as you get close, if you've kind of like missed a crucial step, it'll say, Hey, you gotta, you know, you forgot to get your immunizations and we're three weeks out. So anyways, super useful tool. A lot of people like it, but I just didn't have a good way to promote it. And so the podcast was kind of the next logical thing to build around it. It's like, oh, I can interview people and then we'll direct them to the Nomad Prep if they want to take it a step further. So that's how it came about. Awesome. So we're going to link up to the Nomad podcast in the show notes, but it's available everywhere on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can go and check it out, but we'll also have a direct link at themaverickshow.com in the show notes. And the Nomad Prep Academy, we're also going to link up to that in the show notes. Now, I understand that people can start the Nomad Prep Academy for free, that the first uh, few modules are completely free. So they can just click on the link, go through and just start taking it, checking it out and seeing what it is. And then if they want to continue and go through the whole thing, they can end up paying for it, but they can start it for free. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. They get the first four days are free. And then if they want to continue with it, they just pay. I think it's a one-time charge and it's pretty reasonable. I just 
last week rolled out the beginning version of the affiliate program. So if you're listening to this episode and you are already a nomad and you get asked that question, you know, people see your Instagram and they're like, do you ever work? How do you do what you do? Like, I want to be, I want to have your life. Uh, And you find yourself answering like these DMs, these long extended conversations with strangers explaining how you do what you do. Uh, If you face that scenario, basically, I I made it so that you can point them to my course, Uh, you'll be helping them and you'll get paid on it as well. So you can learn more about that. It's just nomadprep.com slash advocate. Cool. So we're going to link all that up in the show notes. And Sean, at this point, the final area that I really want to go into with you is a little bit on the personal growth and productivity side of things. And I know that you have a really interesting concept that I'd like you to talk about called reverse goal planning. Can you explain what that is and how it works? Yeah. So I was first exposed to this uh, way back in the day. I had reviewed a book called Innovation Games. Uh, The author was Luke Homan. And he had a number of games that he had created that, that were just games that you would play in a corporate setting with product owners and their customers, and it would be a way of unearthing insights. Uh, But he had this one in particular called Remember the Future that was all about basically a unique way of how you plan a product. And instead of thinking like, what should this thing be? You project yourself forward and then look back and remember the future, quote unquote. And And it's just a different way of thinking about it. What's interesting is I've seen something recently, like Amazon does this in a very specific way. The Amazon approach to product development is they will write a press release that they want to run six months from now. And this is that forces their people to think, okay, what do we want to be celebrating and saying? And how are we talking about the product and what has happened up to that point? And it's just this, the same concept of project yourself forward and look back and what must have occurred by that point in order to be able to publish this press release. And it forces you to think differently and really get clarity on some of the product the product development decisions uh, that led up to that point. Cool. And then you have another concept that you shared with me called punching past the board. Can you share what that means to you? Yeah. So punching past the board, uh, I way, way, way back in the day took Taekwondo and I had this insane like level five black belt instructor. This guy, I watched him break river rock with his hand. Uh, But breaking a board, if you try to hit the board and you aim for the board, you're going to break your hand. You have to aim at a spot that's past the board. And the analogy there when applied, I think, in business is that, you know, if you're trying to accomplish a certain goal, case in point being like with our charity makeover thing, if we're trying to this weekend knock out this very small fundraising project idea, it is helpful to punch past the board, so to speak, in terms of getting them to see the larger picture. And so I will go through this exercise where we're doing visualization, we're thinking about like, who are the refugees that we're helping? Imagine, you know, being ripped from your homeland and coming in, you know, as a Syrian refugee in Lisbon, not having a source of income, not knowing the local language, like really embed and put yourself in that position and feel what that's like. And then that is the person that we're serving here. So then that is the ultimate goal. And then that becomes like, okay, so it's not a fundraising campaign. It's like that person that we're helping. And once you can identify with that and internalize those emotions and what that must feel like to be that person, uh, it just like energizes you. So I think that's a good example, but you can apply that in a lot of ways. It, the point is 
don't think about the end goal of what you're producing at that point. Think about the bigger picture beyond that, because that's what fuels you to get through whatever the immediate challenge is. I love that. Can you now talk a little bit about your personal productivity habits, routines, practices? How do you structure your day? Do you have morning routines? How are you able to create the amount of output that you do for work and all the other things that you're involved with? Yeah, uh, I didn't used to. I've developed a pretty elaborate morning routine that I've been doing for the last couple months. Um, So what that looks like, basically one of the podcast interviewees that I interviewed, Danielle Thompson, convinced me to do this and I've been doing it. It's a great practice, but a gratitude journal is the very first thing. So when I'm just waking up in the morning and I'm still, you know, out of it and sleepy and whatnot, I have a little book by my nightstand. I pick that up and I just write three things that I'm thankful for. And then one like either mantra or like affirmation or a song lyric. It's whatever I'm kind of feeling is like the theme for that day or that week. And I'll write that down. And that's just the very first thing I do. And then I do uh, this thing called Wim Hof breathing method. You can look that up. It's a it's a whole thing, but it's it's basically a, a type of breath work that oxygenates, like hyper oxygenates your body. So I'll do that for 30 minutes. And then uh, I do Sam Harris waking up. It's a podcast. Uh, well, it's actually an app now, uh, but it's a type of meditation program that he does similar to Headspace, but I think it's a little better. And then I will do like drink a bunch of water, either go for a run or do TRX. So I alternate, I'll do like minimalist running one day, and then I'll do TRX, which is like a suspension trainer workout uh, in my house the other day. Uh, And then that's my morning. That's like, that sets me up uh, to be productive that day. And all told, I think that whole thing takes about two hours. Um, But what's cool, this is like actually one of the cool things about being on Lisbon hours is that working Europe hours like most of my team is on the West Coast in the US. So my day doesn't really start until about 2 p.m. Lisbon time, uh, which is nice because that means I can do, I can have like uh, an involved morning routine that I wouldn't otherwise do just from time constraints. Back in the US, if I were to do that, I'd have to be getting up at like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. and I'm not a morning person. So this allows me to do that. And then I work into the night and it's great. Awesome. All right, Sean, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? The lightning round. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. The lightning round. All right. Now, on the last podcast, you got the lightning round question to name your top five hip hop MCs of all time, which you did. But I understand that in preparation for this podcast, just in case I was going to ask you for another five, you prepared Hip Hop MCs number six through 10. And since you had that prepared, we are definitely going to lead off with that. So a lightning round question number one, who are the next five MCs to round out your top 10 of all time? (laughs) All right. So for number one, I'm going to go with, relatively new person because we're both from the same era uh, but Kendrick Lamar I think he uh, is arguably like the Dre of this generation so I'd have to say Kendrick Lamar is probably number six uh, I gotta say Jay-Z is number seven Hova and I'm gonna throw a curveball for number eight I don't know if you know this guy but Sage Francis 
Yeah. So this guy, uh, look him up. Wired Magazine. I first learned about him through uh, Wired Magazine did some kind of study where they actually took all the top hip hop artists and they tried to see, they, they analyzed their vocabulary based on all the lyrics they had written. And so they wanted to see like who was the most well-read, you know, and well-spoken hip hop artist. And like DMX, I think was on like the other end of that spectrum with like the lowest number of words used in his songs. But Sage Francis, uh, this guy was one of the most just well-spoken. And so I got introduced to him that way, but he is an absolute poet. This guy's lyrics, he has so many lyrics per song, but they're amazing. So I would put him up there. I'd say he's probably number eight. I'm going to say number nine, uh, another maybe obscure one, but People Under the Stairs. They're an old school one. I think I've, re- I've recommended them to you before, but they are really awesome. Kind of like West Coast, LA, San Francisco, like old school vibe. And then I'm, for number 10, I'm going to say Zach De La Roca, which is maybe an interesting, not necessarily hip hop, but like a crossover artist, Rage Against the Machines, old singer. But he, I think, has that spirit, you know, that rebellion and that just fierce anger, just raw rage. I don't know how Zach De La Roca, though, uh, I think would be number 10. Awesome. Okay. Next question. What is one tip that you have for stress reduction or stress management? When things get really hectic and stressful in your life, how do you handle that? So I'm I'm pretty fortunate in the role that I have now. Like there was a lot of stress back in the day with Jumpbox because it was my company and it was just it was a really dark time. We confronted a lot of uphill battles. Um, it's not that there is no stress with Pagely, but I have um far less stressful environment these days. I would say when there is stress, like exercise is definitely the best thing I can recommend. Just getting out and doing something, getting or just going for a walk, break up your day, get some sun, you know, reset your mind, listen to podcast or music or anything else that just kind of resets you. Yeah. But other than that, I don't know. Exercise is probably the the best thing you can do. Running is like, I love running. I, I, I do again, like the minimalist footwear, like Vibram style running. And to me that, that made running interesting. Again, I was a longtime runner of just using regular shoes. And so like, that was kind of like the reboot to my running career was getting into that, uh, about six or seven years ago. But I highly recommend just any form of exercise is probably what I would recommend for stress. All right. From all of your world travels, what is one travel hack that you can recommend to people? Man, I can't remember what I answered on the last episode. So I don't want to repeat it. I mean, the thing that comes to mind is like, and it's so stupid, but loop the strap on whatever backpack you're wearing on wherever you're at, loop the strap through your foot or like, at least put it around your knee. So there's pressure and you feel it in any of these places. If you go and you sit on a patio and you put your backpack on the back of the chair, don't do that. Don't put it on like under the table, not touching anything like it will get stolen. So yeah, I mean, just put it so there's always pressure and you can always feel it. And I, I that's just muscle memory for, for me at this point is like anywhere I go, if I've got my laptop, I will just loop the strap so I can feel the pressure and I know it's there. Um, so that's like the simplest hack I can think of. I don't know. There's a bajillion hacks in my course. So take Nomad Prep. <laughs> that's the ch- cheap, shameless self-plug for Nomad Prep there. But there's a lot of those type things. All right. I know that you do self-defense and safety trainings for people. So I wanted to ask you for one safety tip that you have, let's just say for solo travelers, for example. I think the biggest thing that most people can do to improve and don't doesn't even require taking a self-defense course, but like just self-awareness, like situational awareness and being 
we we walk around if if you think of it as like a scale of like white, yellow, orange to red alert, we most of us walk around in this white level of awareness where you couldn't even name the or like describe the person who's walking behind you or next to you or like what's going on. Like most of the time we're in our phones, we're not paying attention and we don't know what's going on around us. So the simplest thing you can do is just to operate at a yellow level. Don't don't be on red alert. Don't try to like go nuts and and become paranoid, but just know what's happening around you at any given moment. This is also just really good like awareness and training to be more present in the moment. If you just kind of someone had this tip I thought was so great that it's like every time you get the urge to look at your phone, let that be a reminder to become present in the current moment. And if you can like make that like the trigger that like anytime you go to like check Instagram or check your email or whatever it is, just let that become the like, oh, yeah, become present, like come back to the moment, look around like what's happening. Um, I think if if you do that, that's the simplest thing. And of course, there's there's a whole bunch you can get into in terms of like de-escalation and distance and, you know, combatives and all that stuff. But like that is probably the single best thing and simplest thing anyone can implement to improve their uh, personal safety. I agree with that a lot. I think that is really, really good advice. Okay. Last question. If you could have dinner with any one person who's currently living today, could be a celebrity, author, public figure, anybody that you've never met, who would you choose and why? Yeah. Naval Ravenkant, 100%. Uh, This guy and it's a name that probably not that many people know, but this guy is modern day. He's a he's a venture capitalist. The dude is just a prophet. Like he's he is so enlightened and so well read and well spoken, and not at all mercenary. I would say like he's made a ton of money, and yet you'd never know it. Like he he's like the Bob Marley that made a billion dollars. You know, like he's just like his attitude is so cool. And he's so sharing with his knowledge. But Naval Ravenkant would be my choice for dinner. And just in terms of why, like, uh, what an incredible human being. And like, he has a podcast. I listen to it. I read all of his stuff and he tweets and everything. Like, the guy is just like a wealth of knowledge and is such a chill attitude. So I would want to have dinner with him. All right, Sean, I want you to let people know how they can find you and connect with you. How can they follow you on social media? How can they learn more about what you're up to and get involved? Yeah, for sure. I'm just scrolling on dubs on social media. It's just no G, but scrolling on dubs uh, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can go. I'm sure you'll link this in the notes, but like Charity Makeover would love to hear from you. It's just charitymakeover.com. Uh, my blog is scrollingondubs.com. And uh, other than that, yeah, you can probably just find me on the internet, Google my name. All right, Sean, as always, so good to have you on the show, my man. Thanks for coming back. Always a blast, Matt. Take care, my man. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you by cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber.
To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.